Okay, uh, so if you could open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, that's Malachi chapter 1. Um, we're in the middle of chapter 1, and um, we're going to go through all of the rest of chapter 1 today, starting at verse 6, and we're going to bleed into a few uh, verses in chapter 2 today. Uh, the, the, the divisions in Malachi are a little bit harder to grasp uh, they bleed into each other a little bit more between chapter 1 and 2, I think, than I'm used to. So, again, Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to go from verse 6 uh, through the first couple of verses in um, chapter 2. But before we get to that, and before Sarah prays, I'm going to uh, just give you guys a, a little re re recap on the intro here, because it's, it's a new book for us. Um, remember where we are. I Israel is back from exile. They've been back from exile for a few decades. Um, they had once been a mighty and wealthy and powerful uh, nation. Under Solomon, they had reached the height of their earthly glory, and that's about 500 years before Malachi. But because of their idolatry, uh, they had been severely disciplined by Yahweh, and, and he brought nations to conquer them. He brought Babylon to conquer Judah and uh, lay waste to the temple and to Jerusalem and to take the entire nation of Judah that was left uh, into exile around 600 AD, which was already a, a divided nation. The northern kingdom had been lost to conquest before that. But then, true to Yahweh's promise, he brought Judah back from captivity and they had rebuilt the temple uh, by 514 AD, 515 AD, the temple had been rebuilt. It was a much lesser structure than what they had before, but they had recovered the law, the promises. But a few generations, maybe 70 years into this new normal, the people were responding to this new season of God's mercy, this new start with increasingly old patterns. They were seeing God in ways that were... Um, dishonoring to him and their hearts were becoming hardened some of this may be catalyzed it wasn't the cause of it but was the, the catalyst may to some degree may have been this uh, terrible state of suffering they had gone through and also their humbling situation um, you, you know they had been reduced by terrible tribulation war and captivity to this humble reverent to humble rem, humble remnant they had no more earthly king they had lost much of her land. They were about 60 square miles across now, and they were under the rule of a Persian empire. But the lessons from their humbling were being lost, and instead of reverence and humility, they were becoming lukewarm and indifferent to Yahweh. And this book is a series of rebukes from God designed to wake them up in his mercy uh, with even sometimes a severe mercy, as we'll see today, to wake them up from their deadness. And last week we saw how God rebuked them for denying his love for them. And God's response was that they were his chosen people. And they needed to consider even how he treated their enemies instead of them. But today we'll read the Lord's further concerns about another category of their life with him, their worship of him, their hearts towards him. And that's where I'm going to start in Malachi 6 and go through the first couple of verses in two, and then we'll come together uh, for a brief prayer from Sarah. Okay, starting in verse six of Malachi 1. A son, I'm going to stand here. Okay. Uh, 
one more thing I'm going to do. Okay, a little bit easier to see me. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Sarah, would you pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for your presence among your people today and this morning. I want to pray from Ephesians 1, starting at 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when we raised him from the dead, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as and he gave him a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Lord, I just want to pray for your insight, Lord, that we may be your people enlightened to your word, to your scripture, Lord, that we may be able to see what you are trying to say to us, Lord. I pray that you would use Albert, um, that you would fill his mouth with your words, and that you would open the hearts and the eyes of your people all around, Lord, and that you would put a change in us, whether it's repentance or exhortation or some kind of hope and joy, Lord. You can do all of it. So I just pray for your presence in this time, that your name will be glorified, and that you, you would be able to see your glory more and more, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Sarah, thank you so much, sister. So let's start at verse six. Where is my honor? In fact, that's the message today. The title of it is, where is my honor? And verse six has that phrase. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? Right away, the Lord affirms, and I think there's an implication of great love here, just as there was in, in the first section, in the first few verses we read last week. The Lord affirms he is a father to Judah. He is a father to the people, to the priests that he is speaking to. He has bound himself to them. He has set his name just like we all have our father's name when we're born, typically. He has set his name, that is his reputation, his character, his faithful love. He is bounded up with them. And they are alone among all the nations of the earth that bear his name. He's not only their God and creator as he is, as he is of every man and woman and child on the earth, he loves them uniquely and cares for them particularly and disciplines them lovingly as his very own children. And so he asks here though, if I am a father, where is my honor? Among the 10 commandments, the sixth commandment tells us, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The word honor is probably exactly what you think it is. It means to value, to prize, to revere. When you honor someone, you are, one person says it's very simply, you are respectful in word and in action, having an inward attitude of esteem for their position. And this is how we are to be towards our mothers and fathers. And it should be said, as you all know, that our, our earthly fathers are never perfect. Some of us have even had very, very poor earthly fathers, but that's not the way they were supposed to be. Fathers, as well as mothers, were God's first instituted authority to reflect himself over the children. They were created to be authority figures like God himself, 
and they point to the reality of God's ultimate authority over all things. To dishonor or to demean them in Israel was to sin against not just the Father, but God's authority. And the penalty for cursing one's parents in the Old Testament was death by stoning. Many of us would not have made it to adulthood if we were in, a, in Judah properly practicing the Levitical law. I don't think I would have. And so the, pen, the, the, the penalty reflected the value of the father, and the value of the father reflected the value of God. So dishonoring parents is a sign of the undoing of humanity in the last days in 2 Timothy 3. And it's evidence in Romans 1 of the very wrath of God upon, humil upon humanity. And so the Lord says, if your imperfect earthly fathers deserve honor because they image the ultimate heavenly father, then how much more do I deserve honor? And of course, God isn't just father. He is master. He says, if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? I don't know about you, but historically, it's been easy for me to feel fear, reverence towards my earthly bosses or supervisors. Our earthly employees, our, our earthly employers hold great sway in our lives from an earthly point of view over our whole futures. We fear disappointing them. We fear coming to meetings late and unprepared. We fear being known as the ones who can't handle our responsibilities. We desire their commendation and their approval. Financially speaking, we recognize that from an earthly perspective, they hold our very security to a large measure in their hands. But the Lord says, think about me. What are they compared to me? At any moment, God can not just shut down your bank account, he can shut down your lungs your very next breath. If the Lord decides in a moment to let the laws of gravity take a break, the entire universe will collapse. If, as Paul says in Acts 17, in him that is in the Lord, we live and move and have our very being. How much more is our security in his hands? And so God says, if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. And notice the Lord refers to him here, especially as the Lord of hosts. In this passage I read today, I saw this at least eight times, the Lord of hosts. He says it over and over and over again. So we want to stop and ask, why is God using this name again and again? First of all, Lord is his divine name given to Israel. It's the respectful masking in our Bibles. We don't see Lord. We see Y-H-W-H, -H, the tetragrammon. We, we don't see that. We see, we see Lord. Usually capital L-O-R-D means Yahweh's name is being used there uh, and covered out of respect. But, but this, this word for Lord in capital letters is Y-H-W-H, -H, Hebrew, Hebrew consonants. And it it's the Lord as he described himself to Moses at the burning bush. when he, It's related to the Lord telling Moses, I am that I am. Y-H-W-H is related to the, the Hebrew verb to exist, to be. So God said to Moses, when Moses said, what is your name in case people ask who has sent me? And God says, tell them, I am that I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. 
God's sacred name, I am, describes his self-sustaining being, his all-sufficiency as the only entity in the universe who needs nothing to be, but who himself is the source and upholder of all things that are. And then there's this word hosts. He's not just Yahweh. He's Yahweh of hosts. That's the Hebrew word Sabaoth. Sabaoth. I'm probably not pronouncing it perfectly, but Sabaoth means armies, like military armies. And, and this name is perhaps best conveying God's powerful heavenly armies of angelic beings. The Lord is reminding this small, humble, tiny nation with all these big nations around that seem bigger and stronger than them, that and you know they're perhaps feeling inadequate and they're self-pitying themselves in their smallness. And he's saying, I am the true power in the world. I, the, the Lord who has favor on you is the Lord of the greatest armies. He's the one to be feared, not Egypt, not Babylon. He's the one to respect, not Assyria, not Greece, not Persia. You might remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is about to be arrested, Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier. And, and as Jesus heals the soldier's ear, he says, almost assuredly to Peter, he says, put your sword away. And then he says this, do you not know that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, Peter, I could call down tons of soldiers, but then how would I go to the cross to die for the sins of the world? But let's think about what Jesus said. I could call more than 12 legions of angels. God is called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angelic armies. If Jesus was using that word legions and the way it was understood to Peter, he might have meant as many as 720,000 angels. That would be equivalent to 12 legions of Roman soldiers. 720,000 angels. Jesus is saying, I can take care of this from a power point of view. That's not what I'm about today. I'm about... My, laying down my life. But coming back to Malachi, the Lord through Malachi says, if I am the God of the universe who is almighty over all power, who is the great I am that I am, who dwells in unapproachable light, how much more do I deserve reverence than your earthly fathers, than your earthly masters? And yet God says, not only were they not respecting him, not only were they not fearing him, they were despising him. They were despising his name, Yahweh. His name was precious. It was holy. It represented who he was. It represented his intimate revelation of his very character to them, exclusively to them, his chosen people. It was a precious and indescribable honor to know God's name. No nation on the face of the earth knew this name. None were given it, rather, to wear as their own beloved husband redeemer, except Israel. 
The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that is the name in the Ten Commandments is, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, the I am that I am, in vain. For Yahweh will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. It was a grievous sin to use God's name in an empty way. But God says to Judah, you're actually despising my name. People didn't understand. Look at verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? And God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And, and you say, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. In other words, you bring that sacrifice saying, please entreat the favor of God. This is probably the people handing the animal to the priests and what they might say. Entreat the favor of God with this lamb, this roadkill, this stench, this rancid bird, the one I didn't want. God says, with such a gift from your hand, will you show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. We need to remember that through the temple that Israel had and the sacrificial system, God had blessed Israel exclusively among all the nations with the means and methods to worship him in a way that he would accept. He had prescribed according to his heart's desire and will different sacrifices, some for voluntary free will, Thanksgiving sacrifices, uh, sacrifices of what's called uh, peace, fellowship, devotion sacrifices. These, these were sacrifices just say, Lord, I love you. I thank you. I want to walk in friendship with you. And these were often free will, voluntary sacrifices. But the Lord also commanded sin offerings and guilt offerings. These were animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And of course, now we know that these sacrifices point to Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. But at that time, before Jesus, this was how Almighty God had chosen up to that point to reveal himself to sinful men and women so that they would have a way to walk in covenant peace and in loving friendship and in devotion to the Lord God. And of course, it was designed to prepare their hearts and minds for Jesus, so they would understand we need atonement, we need blood, we need atonement and blood of something of great value to us. So the Lord giving Israel the temple and the sacrificial system, it expressed his loving commitment to them among all the nations. It was meant to give expression also, though, to their response to him. He gave them the way to respond to them. It was to be an outward expression of an inward reality that God was their God and he was their people. And, and because of all this, the sacrifices were to be of the highest value and the highest worth of those offering them because they were reflective of God's worth. They were reflective of the value the people placed on their relationship with him. But instead of the highest quality offering, the priests 
were offering the poorest quality. They were offering the blind animals they didn't want. They were offering the broken boned animals they couldn't use. They were offering the sick animals that were gross to them and a threat to the rest of their flock. That's what they were giving to God. That's what the priests were receiving from the people and were blessing in their work in ministry. And listen, don't, don't miss the point here. It's not that God didn't care about animals that were impaired. It's not that he didn't care about the blind lamb. Or, it's, it's what these offerings said about him. These lame offerings said God was lame. These worthless offerings said God was worthless. They said, God, help us to be a little religious outwardly. Help us to show up for a moment. But, but we don't want you to have our hearts. We don't want to give you anything worthwhile. And in light of what God was really worth, in light of what he really deserved, these offerings, God says, were despising him. They were holding him in great contempt. And God said, it's far worse than you think with your comfortable religion. You are actually treating my name, my real glory, my character as being something to be trashed and despised among you. And then the Lord asks them a deeply searing and penetrating question. He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? If the priests or the people of Judah had to meet with the ruler of their town or their city, perhaps some Persian official who had power over their lives, are they going to sit him down for a meal of diseased lamb? Would they give him uh, the most rancid and lowest quality fowl they could find in their birdcage? And then, again, as we said, I, I think God sort of gets in the feet of the people offering this, this sacrifice. Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. And the Lord retorts, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of his hosts. It's not the animals. It's about the heart they reflected. God doesn't need the animals. Psalm 50 declares... Every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and everything it contains. This isn't about God being needy. Acts 17, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does he not dwell he does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God didn't need these sacrifices. God didn't want these animals for themselves. He wanted the hearts of the people whom he was seeking to save. He wanted their hearts. He deserved their hearts. And ultimately, it was for their joy for him to have their hearts. 
It was for their good and their salvation, for him to have their hearts. It would be destruction and death for him not to have their hearts. But it would also be a great dishonoring for him not to have their hearts. So God is saying, give me your heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The best and most valuable things in your life will tell you where your heart is. The way you use most of your time, the way you use most of your money, that will tell you what you treasure the most. They were doing as little as they could because they valued God as little as they could. So they were doing as little as they could because they valued God as little as they could. They were self-blinded. So we've been talking about for weeks what Sarah prayed. They could not see his value. They couldn't see his, his glory. They didn't treasure him. And they were, they were self-blinded to the unspeakable privilege of being in a real relationship with the living God, of being able to call the great I am that I am your very father. And in doing so, they were hurting themselves. They were depriving themselves. It wasn't that God needed it. They did. In fact, God says, not only do I not need this, I wish you would just stop. Let's just close the whole thing down. Shut the doors. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be made. For my name will be great among the offering, among the nations, says the Lord. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. You bring it as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? God is repeating himself. You're not hearing me read verses again. He's just trying to get this into their heads. Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of heaven's armies, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. And so the picture ends even sadder. Even these contemptible offerings of rancid, sick, broken creatures, they're being brought with a cynical attitude. Ah, oh, what weariness this is. Do we have to do these sacrifices again? 
Do we have to show up to temple again? Look at this gross bird. I got to offer to God. And God doesn't, you know, oh, it's got to be this quality. It's got to be this quality. Ah, oh, what weariness. Just give him this. And the Lord just says, let's just shut it down. Because I'm going to make sure that my name, the name that you despise, is treated as it should be treated all over the earth. The ends of the earth will rejoice in me. They will call me their treasure. If you don't want to, they will. If you don't want to, it is you who will be denied and put to shame and cursed. Not, not me. You'll be cursed. The Lord says he will curse these priests for leading his people into this lukewarm, half-hearted worship. Because they will not lay it to heart. They will not listen. They will not give honor to his name. So, that's the text. Whew. Just some takeaways. First, I want to preface our application. That was a heavy text. We are not Judah. We are a new covenant people. We are saved by grace through faith. But God has some words for us today. But, but I want to preface our application with hope. We have great hope. Because Jesus saves us from this. From the whole thing. Jesus saves us not only from the wrath of God. But Jesus saves us from being imprisoned to this kind of false worship. Jesus saves us not only from the wrath of God, but he saves us from this kind of living, from this kind of attitude towards God. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, listen to what Jesus' death accomplishes in his people. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus didn't die only for your sins, brothers and sisters. He didn't die only for my sins. He died so that I could no longer and you would no longer have to live for yourself. He died to give us the new heart that God promised in the new covenant to his people. But we've got a text here that we just read. So, so how should we think about this text? How should we apply this to us? Well, we, we do want to remember the context. This message was written to a priesthood that's serving in a temple that ended. It's a priesthood that ended serving in a temple that ended. But listen, brothers and sisters, there is still a priesthood today. There is still a temple today. Of course, there is our great high priest, Jesus. We'll talk about him in a moment. But I'm talking about our priesthood, your priesthood. 1 Peter 2 says this. Listen to how Peter speaks of our lives in God and how well they connect with the temple and the priesthood that Micah was talking about. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, 
and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, that's Jesus, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, me, you, we are a priesthood, offering not sin offerings for our guilt, but offering our lives to God through his once and for all offering. And, and together, Peter says, as a church, we are not only priests individually, but together we are the temple of God. And so I want to consider three things. Our hearts as priests before God, our church as the temple of God, and the Lord as our ultimate sacrifice before God. Three things. First, our hearts as priests before God. Our hearts. Let's start with our own hearts. We're not Judah. We're not in that temple. But, but can you hear the Lord? Can you hear the great I am that I am crying out to us? Where is my honor in your heart? Where is the reverence for me in your heart? We all fall short of this, don't we? I, I know I do. I, I need to see better and better and more consistently the privilege of being able to call Almighty God my Father and my friend. How we need to see the shocking dignity that the great I Am would offer himself to be our treasure, to be our King, to be our husband redeemer, to want an intimate relationship with us. It's mind-boggling. God commanded these priests to bring the best of the flock as an expression of his supreme worth in their hearts. So I just ask you, I ask myself, what's his worth in your heart? What's his worth in our heart? Do you thirst for his name in this season of your life? And I, and I know none of us is perfect, but is there, is there a thirst for his name to be exalted, to be treasured? to be seen. Is his heart being the supreme treasure of your life, your desire? Do you zealously, deeply want him to be your heart's desire, to be your greatest treasure? This is what Jesus deserves. This is what Jesus commands. This is not something we get out of because of the cross. This is something we're brought into because of the cross. In Revelation 4, the Lord says to one of the churches, Laodicea, he, he's talking to Christians. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. What you, they were playing religion games like these priests. And he says, would that you were either cold or hot. Would that you would either be zealous for me or shut the door, close down the church. 
Make up your mind about me, he says. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's saying, I, I'm saying these things to you because I love you. So be zealous. Be zealous. There's no cold. There's only hot. There's no lukewarm. There's only hot. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, don't be lukewarm about me. And if you are lukewarm about me, cry out, cry out, cry out until you aren't lukewarm anymore. Go to war with it. Be zealous, he says. Now, I know that not everybody is temperamentally oriented the same way. Not all great, you know, it's funny. You, you listen to a Tim Keller message and you listen to a John Piper message. You, you, you hear two very different personality types. You hear some, you know, Tim Keller is as calm as a nice cup of tea and it's sitting with a buddy in your kitchen or on the deck, you know, just talking over a beer. You know, he is just calm. John Piper is crying and crying out. And, you know, they both love Jesus. They're both zealous. He's not talking about personality temperament. He's talking about your inward heart. And he says, be zealous. Don't be lukewarm about me. It won't last. I won't put up with it. I'll shut the doors. So come, he says, be zealous. Let's work on this. It's serious. He says, come and buy from me without money. I'll give you balm for your eyes. Come. He says, come and ask me to help you with this. I'll, I'll clean your eyes. I'll heal you. You got to come and cry out to me and tell me you want me. This can feel very overwhelming and abstract. I, I know that. But I think some of this delves into concrete decisions about how we take each day. Christianity is a life to be lived one day at a time. Thank God. Thank God. I couldn't live it one week at a time, much less one month or five-year plan. <laughs> one day at a time, he says, offer your heart to me, one day at a time. And so do you offer your heart to him in a meaningful day, in a meaningful way each day? He wants you daily to take up your cross and follow him. And, and this, ha this has to involve some use of time and attention on Jesus. I can't tell you how much is right for you. I'm not here to tell you to have a 30-minute quiet time or a 45-minute quiet time or 10-minute quiet time or a two-minute Our Father that you mean from the depths of your heart. God knows, and you can work it out with him. But it looks like something. It looks like something to give him meaningful time each day in which you can offer yourself to him to say, Lord, I am picking up my cross today to follow you. Give me grace. And, and it, let me just ask, if you're not doing that, why? Why is that? Are, are you a single mom with five boys like Amanda? 
Amanda Aguilar may have good reason to struggle to find time and attention for the Lord. And, and you may have good reasons yourself. But there is some time that's right for you. There is some time that's right for Amanda. There is some time. It, and, and listen, most of us are Amanda. Let's be honest. Sorry, Amanda, I'm picking on you. Most of us aren't Jen with four kids who do four different laptops with four different links to each class with four different cords and four different confusions about what assignment is every day, pulling their hair out. Most of us have a lot of time for our phones, for social media, for Facebook, for news, for sports, for Netflix, for video games. And some of us who have all that time for those things have apparently very little time for Jesus Christ. And, and I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, if that's us, if that's you, if that's me in our day, something is very, very wrong. If we've got time for scrolling and, and reading and being caught up in the skiing game on our phone or what's going on with Brady and the Super Bowl, but we don't have time for Jesus Christ, something is really wrong. So again, we may not know exactly what this should look like, but he will help us. He wants your heart. And let us declare to him, let us declare to him today that we want each day to meet with him and to hear from him about whatever he wants and that whatever he wants, we don't want to withhold any of it from him. Whatever the sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving or of our lives today it is, we don't want to give him roadkill. We don't want to give him a, a bird that's stench. We don't want to give him a goat that's blind and broken ribbed. We want to give him what he deserves. We want to give him our best. And listen, he knows what to do with our hearts when we bring him this. He knows our responsibilities. He knows that we have uh, jobs. He knows that we have families. He knows that we have good God-given desires for food and for friendship and, and sleep. And listen, the God who invented ice cream and sunsets and physical intimacy and little kittens, and he is not a God who's against fun. He created it. He's not a tyrant. He is kind and generous and loving and wise. But he is serious when he says, he is to mean more to you than mother, father, wife, husband, or children, or your life itself. He says, if you don't understand that and pursue that, you can't be my disciple. And, and he says, that's going to look like something. I can't tell you, Albert can't tell you what it's going to look like for you. But it is going to look like something. It's certainly going to look like he means more to us than our phones. Number two, his church as a temple. His church as his temple. Just as there is no more Levitical priesthood, there is no more physical temple in Israel. There's no more golden temple on, on the mount in Jerusalem. But God still has a temple. Listen to Ephesians 2. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to us. You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself 
as the chief cornerstone. In him, listen, he's talking about a cornerstone. He's talking about building language. He's talking about structure language, right? In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, there is no more temple in Jerusalem. We are the temple. Our church is the temple. And of course, we are individually all temples of the Holy Ghost in one sense. But, but Paul and Peter talk about the whole church when they use this temple language you're reading today. Together, we are his very body where his glory dwells together. Christ has put his name upon his church together. He has come to build not you individually in your quiet time. He's come to build his church his gathered group. And he's put his name on us. He's bound his character with us. 18 times or more in the New Testament, we're called the church of God or the church of Christ or the church of the living God or my church. He's united with us. What happens to us happens to him. What happens to him happens to us. When Jesus came to Paul, when he converted Paul, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus confronted Paul and, and he asked him a question about why he was persecuting as he was. And mark Jesus' words. He doesn't say to Paul, Paul, why are you treating Christians so badly? He doesn't even say, why are you treating my people so badly? No, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't at the cross. He didn't put the nails in Jesus' hands. He was throwing his people into prison. And Jesus says, Paul, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. I live in them. It's my bride. That's me in there. We're his very household, his family. He's put his name on us. And each local church, of course, this is true of the entire global church, but each local church is a local expression of that same name, that same glory, that same temple. And so how you treat your local church, how you treat this church, brothers and sisters, is to some very real degree how you treat Jesus. And so how do you treat this church? How do you hold this church in your heart? I'm speaking to many of you who have poured out your lives through so much hard stuff and have persevered through so much broken trust, broken down stuff. And, and I believe God is saying through all of that, you care about me. You care about my church. And I'm not saying that people who've left in the past didn't. It's, it's, it's for the Lord that we stay and build. It's for the Lord if we don't. It needs to be for the Lord. But I have had people say they're here because it, in one way or another, because it seems to be a cool happening place. I've had other people say they're not coming because it just doesn't seem as cool for them or as relevant for them or the music isn't working for them. Or 
and, and, and I can't discern what God is doing in your individual's hearts. And I need to be careful not to cross that line of the Holy Spirit. I would just say, brothers and sisters, be here for the most important reasons, for the Lord and to love his people. Not because it's cool or not cool. Not because the, you like the worship music or you don't like the worship music. I mean, if the worship, if we're singing untruth, if we're preach, preaching heresy, then come and help us. And if we won't respond, get out, you know. But don't treat this church or any local church superficially. Don't be like that. This is the very temple of God. This is his household. This is his body. Yes, part of the universal body, but no less his body because we're only a small expression of it. So let's ask ourselves, where might we, and we all fall short of this, okay? I, I hope that goes without saying, but it probably should in a message like this not be left unsaid. We all struggle with this. But we, we should ask ourselves in light of today's message, where might we snort and say, oh, what weariness this church is. Where might you grumble about a care group meeting or a Bible study or a DR or just getting coffee with someone that you promised to get coffee with or returning a phone call to someone who's calling you for help or praying for someone who's asked for prayer again? Or dare I say it? Oh, Lord, help me. I'm asking for prayer, not because this is the most important thing, but because I just don't want to get this room wrong. Coming to worship on time. I am the chief of sinners in this respect. It's easy for me to ask you guys to come and to be ready to sing at 10.05, because usually I'm the one leading the singing, and I have to be. And it's also involving my flesh. I've talked to you guys before about fleshly identity ways that my pride can get caught up in, my, in, in who's here and who's not. But just putting all that aside for a second, who are we singing to? Who are we addressing together in ways that God calls us to sing to him together? Isn't he important? Isn't he to be treasured? And, and shouldn't that show up in the effort we make relative to us to come together on time to sing to him. And I know I have been a party to this because I will start meetings late because I'm waiting for some of you guys. Some of you guys are on time and you're like, why are you waiting? You know, and, and I, I just want to say like, let's not turn this into a judge each other moment. You cannot know why someone walks in at 1030. I cannot know that. And most of you have all walked in late to something or another. And there are oftentimes good reasons. And for some of us like me, it's really hard to be on time. I, I fight it. I, I do even pray about it. Um, but, but it is a battle for me. So I, I always have sympathy for you because I'd be such a hypocrite. But, but we should ask ourselves, do we have good reasons for missing a time of fellowship? Do we have good reasons? I guess that's what I'm saying struggle, battle to show up to care group. Have good reasons if you don't go to care group. Have good reasons if you don't go to a fellowship meeting. Have good reasons if you come in at 1030. Have good reasons to not be able to give 
to the church, your time, your talent, your treasure. Don't have superficial reasons. Don't, don't let it be because it's just not a big deal, because it is a big deal to God. And so it should be a big deal to us. The book of Malachi says, it matters to the Lord. I have I, 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 I want to say something else and I, and I realized that like my printer printed um, it got opened by one of my kids. Um, so the, the other thing I want to say is um, is really just about relationships because church is is not really functionally it, it's not a building. And it's not even like a time. So that the 10 o'clock thing is an issue not of, of coming to a scheduled thing, but giving honor to God. You know, but, but, but what the church is as God's temple is people. It's people. And people are hard to deal with. So it's a really weird thing because if you were in Israel, you'd have a stone structure and you wouldn't have to like wonder about what a stone structure was going to do to you. You wouldn't have to wonder about how a stone structure is going to talk about you behind your back or refuse to, you know, return your calls or not invite you to something or betray a confidence. You wouldn't have to worry about a stone structure doing that. But God puts his spirit in broken people who still battle with sins. And it is a fearful thing to be with people who will hurt you and to give your heart to people who will break it. And God doesn't ask us to be fools and to be doormats and to be stupid and to give our pearls to what is sacred. But he does ask us in ways that are wise, in ways that are smart, but in ways that are true, to love one another and to not snort at each other and to not be cynical to each other and to not be harsh with each other. He does ask us to forgive one another, to pursue one another, to be forbearing with one another, to be long-suffering with one another. He does ask us to have relationships that last. And, and when he asks us to share with each other and to give our, our goods to each other, he's asking us all these things because he lives in one another. And so we're worth it. We're worth it. Not because of us, but because of the one who lives inside us. Now, again, we, we have great value as image bearers, fearfully and wonderfully made people. But brothers and sisters, Jesus lives in your fellow church member, and he's worth your time. And so they are. Young people, Jesus lives in the old people in our church, and he's worth your time. And so they are. Older people, Jesus lives in the younger people in this church, and he's worth your time. And so they are. Jesus lives in every believer of his and so they're worth your time because Jesus is worth your time. So let's live in ways that say to God, this is your temple. These people 
They're your very dwelling place. I'm going to treat them as holy because you're holy. I might rebuke them, but it's going to be because you live in them and care about them. I might correct them, because, but it's going to be because you, you, you're holy and you live in them and they mean so much to you. You poured out your blood for them. But I'm going to comfort them because you're worth it. I'm going to share my goods with them. They're worth it because you're worth it. He's worth it. Lastly, let's land where we need to land. Let's take all this and run to Jesus. The New Testament talks about the sacrifice of praise coming from our lives, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the sacrifice of our shared goods with one another. But you know what the New Testament never talks about coming from us? Any more sacrifices for sin. Thank God the sacrifice for sin is over. It has been given. It can't be outdone. God said, my name is great. And in every nation, in every place, a pure offering will be made for me. Brothers and sisters, this Sunday morning, some 2,500 years after Malachi, in almost every nation, in almost every place, our brothers and sisters are taking the bread and they're taking the cup and they are saying, Lord, this is the pure offering. You gave it to us. We don't give it to you. You gave it to us. All of this half-hearted, lukewarm worship, all of this dishonoring you with our time and with our relationships, all of this you've forgiven, all of this you have made atonement for yourself, all of this you have poured out your blood for. And you know what the most important way we cannot despise this sacrifice, we cannot despise God's temple and, and sacrifices it, by not despising this, by not saying this isn't enough, by not saying this isn't going to do it between me and God, by not saying this can't cover my guilt, this can't cover my failings, this can't incur and draw into my heart the power I need to live new. No, 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 brothers and sisters, this sacrifice is perfect. This sacrifice is all sufficient. And, and I don't mean that I'm not getting transubstantiation here. I'm referring to the once and for all 2,000 years ago body of Jesus Christ offered for us. It is done. It is sufficient for all our sins, for all our shortcomings, to, for all our failures in worship, for all time. It is enough. It is finished. And the Lord commands you and I this morning, don't despise the offering of my son regarded highly by putting your whole hope there. All the hope you need for my forgiveness, all the hope you need for my patience, all the hope you need to know that I have conquered your sins from here to eternity, from the day you were born till the day you died, and all the ways you fail in, in the things we've talked about today. I've covered it all. Let's not despise him. Let's do that by valuing this offering, by putting our hope in it. That with this offering, we can know we're forgiven. With this offering, we can trust the Holy Spirit will be powerfully at work to change us in ways we need to be changed. Amen. Amen.